Mark started the introduction to instruments and the Redeemer's hands, uh, walking through the book, and uh, a number of you are familiar with the book. I was visiting someone yesterday uh, in a nursing home, and uh, they were asking what we're doing in Sunday school, and I was sharing the book, and they, they, they just shared how it was a life-transforming book for them, and just... Uh, uh, it was really impactful. So even us walking through some of these truths, that even if you read the book you're familiar with, but giving a chance to walk back through it. And reminding us, last week we talked about the, the fact that God's made us, that God's designed us to be instruments. And the big picture is that there's a redeeming story in the big picture. We're, we're, not, we're not fatalistic. We're not uh, sitting here in, in hopes of. We're sitting here in hopes as in unfounded hope, but rather in trust in, in Christ. And the fact that God has made us to be instruments of, of his grace. And that's, that's, that's the beauty of what God's called us to do. And so last week was really in this first chapter is really a um, very motivational chapter as you read through it. I mean, I'm encouraged as I was reading through it and, and being reminded of that. Today, he's going in chapter 2. We're instruments towards what end? Towards what end? And we're going to... Look at a passage here. We just talked about, I pulled a couple of phrases he used. What we're going to do is look at a passage in Ephesians chapter 4. So if you want to go to Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to begin there. Walk through this text. And then as we're going to try to get one, uh, I'm going to pull out some of the statements that he's made. And in those statements, for us to interact around those statements as well. And try to engage his thought process through this. Instruments towards what end? few things he brings out here as a reminder god uses the ordinary people to do extraordinary things in the lives of others because that statement is often often used to do what the, the statement you know ordinary people to do extraordinary things extraordinary things we think that in terms of ourselves right we're going to do great things for god and i've been studying a lot of william carey recently part of my chapter two my dissertation i've been going through uh his foundational work and william, william carey's work and he preached at Isaiah 54 back in, I think, in May of 1792, his famous sermon on expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Well, that's nothing wrong with that statement, obviously, but we use often that in terms of God's going to do great things with me and with my life. We often use it with our kids as well. God's going to do great things with your life. And so we use this as opposed to, he keeps on reminding them, in the lives of others, in the lives of others, in the lives of others. So that's a constant flow reminder. He did, God doesn't just equip us to be wonderful people so that we can do wonderful things for ourselves to glorify God. It's constantly that interweaving, that intertwining with others. So God intended for us to be instruments of God's love in the lives of others. God transforming people's lives as people bring his word to others. So he, he's bringing that constant, constant reminder. Ephesians 4, great text. We're going to walk through in a little bit of a systematic way, verses 11 through verse verse 16. Chapter Ephesians 4, I didn't speak on this when I preached a couple weeks ago. I could have used this text on, on church unity. I didn't refer to it, uh, and yet it's a great passage on, on church unity. Ephesians 4, uh, right in the beginning, verse 3, he talks about endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So the, the context is that of unity in the body, unity in the church, um, endeavoring to keep this unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Talk about being one body, one spirit, we're called to one hope. So that oneness that he describes in verse 3 and then verse 4, verse 7, it walks into to that end, each one of us grace is given according to the measure of Christ. So talk about the gifts that are given. 
verse 11. So we're going to read verse 11. He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers for the equipping of the saints. This is not a complete list. If you go through the list of, of giftings in, in, in the scripture, I think there's four primary areas you can go. None of them have the same complete list. They overlap, and there's different parts of the giftings of the Spirit. Um, I'm not going to – we could we could speak exactly what we mean by, by gifting of the Spirit, but we're not maybe go there today. But he talks about verse 12, equipping for the equipping. So he gives a description of it. Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body. So we all come to the unity. So first of all, we see three things he underlines here for the, the, the purpose of these giftings. God's gifted every one of you, every one of us. He's gifted. Now, let me just say this too. He's gifted your children as well. One of your tasks as a parent is to help them early on to identify how God has gifted them for the glory of God, for the purpose of edifying the body, for the purpose of, of serving. And how does that fit into the body of Christ? Some people make a, a greater distinction than I would in terms of natural talents, natural abilities, and spiritual giftings. I think for the most part, your spiritual giftings are a sanctification of your natural talents. It means as you take natural abilities God's given to you, as those are sanctified and put to God's use, they're sanctified, they become spiritual giftings for God's purpose. Um, I, you go back through the Old Testament and the tabernacle, what, how did they sanctify the utensils for the, for the tabernacle? They set them aside, they anointed them, and they sanctified them, and they became sanctified for the purpose of being used in the temple, in the tabernacle. So originally they were just normal tools that you could use for anything, but they were sanctified and anointed, set aside for. So God equips, God gifts, God gives abilities, all comes from the Lord, and as we set those aside for his purpose, some have the ability to teach. But you could be a great accountant in a bank, and not necessarily equipped to do that in a church, but God can sanctify and, and use that and use that natural ability. Same thing with teaching, same thing with uh, desire to work with children, the gift of hospitality, all these things God can use as they're sanctified, set aside for his purpose, and he equips that way. So three, three things, first of all, in verse, verse 12, three things that he mentions specifically why God's gifted you. Why has God gifted you? Is it so that you can have a better life? I mean, he's going to hammer this home pretty well in chapter 2. Is it so that you can be fulfilled? We're, we're in the spirit of fulfillment. You have to probably grab a chair out of there. Or there's two comfortable chairs over here. So, see? Yeah. Well, they were, those over there were work fine, too. Um, we... Go on, Jeff. We often not only see these giftings and abilities, we see them in light of what, we're going to be able to, what we are going to be able to do with them. How can we be, as I mentioned earlier, how we're going to be more fulfilled with them, how we're going to be more accomplished with them, how we're going to be better able to advance with them, as opposed to how has God equipped me in this, in this way for three reasons here. One, he's given me these giftings for the equipping of the saints. What does it mean for the equipping of the saints? God's, I mean, think of how, I mean, he really takes time to walk through and he tells stories in his book to, to make it personal with his family and with his life. Think, 
think about, first of all, how unique it is and how blessed it is that God's equipped you. God's given you abilities. God's given you talents. God's given you everything you receive, you receive from him for three reasons here. The first one is to what? To equip the saints. Do you, do you see what God's given you as one of the reasons is to equip others? What does it mean to equip the saints? For what? For the equipping of the saints. For what? For the, for the work of the ministry. Verse 12, it says, for the edifying of the body. And you can't, you can't read his, because of the way he writes the book, you can't read it and not understand. I've been equipped for, for God's equipped me for the purpose of ministry and for the purpose of edifying the body. Do you look at, I mean, do you look at your life that way? I mean, understandably so, when most people come to church, the first thing they, they if you've been in your recent past, done some church searching, you go to a church, I don't. I rarely think people go to church thinking, "How can I, how can I best use my abilities here?" You usually go think, "Let me see. I've got young kids. I want to see what their children's ministry is like. Let me see how those greeters are like. Man, those greeters, man, she didn't smile. This place is not a friendly place. You know, they they didn't serve coffee. The last place we're at, man, they serve coffee. And and you go in and you you have this approach to things that is inevitably a little bit consumerism, a little bit how it's going to fit. Some people go to larger churches because they could blend in and, and kind of, you know, that way no one really knows if I'm here or not. There's no accountability. And I uh, had a lady friend who's been, she's a, a faithful lady, been in the Word for a long time. Uh, but issues in her church, she left her church, started coming here for a while just because she's not decided exactly where to go with her daughter, older daughter. But she says, I quickly realized and here is this lady in her mid-50s, solid, grounded, good lady in the world. She says, I quickly realized how easy it is for me to not get up and go to church when no one knows if I'm going to be there or not. Mm-hmm. Now that I'm not at this other church, now that I'm not at this other church and no one expects me here, and they don't expect me there anymore, now i got to think, you know, I really want to get up this morning on this beautiful day. And it's amazing how quickly, I was talking to Jane about that, just how quickly... We, we can divert very easily easily to that. So uh, the coming here as not people look for churches for different reasons, large or small, but having people usually look for those smaller churches, look for that community feel, that family feel. Uh, sometimes you go to a larger church. Uh, nothing wrong with large church. If you go to a larger church, you got to connect to the smaller groups. you got to connect to their small groups, their Sunday school classes. you got to find other, other venues to build relationships within the body. So, we, we should be actively asking ourselves, how am I contributing to the work of the ministry, number one, and how am I contributing to edifying the body of Christ? Do I edify the body? Do I contribute to edify the body? Would that not change quite a bit in church, in my own mindset, and what I say at church? If, I, if, I, if the question was, am I edifying the body here? Am I helping to grow the body? Am I helping to strengthen the body? Am I, or am I just have a critical view because of X, Y, and Z? So he goes through that in verse 12. Then look, look at where he leads. So there's a natural progression here leading to verse 13. So now we come to verse 13. He says, until. So there's, there's the equipping, the gifting on the one hand, that leads to what? Fulfilling ministry 
fulfilling the edification of the body, the build up the body, the strength of the body, until so now there's now there's a natural progression that leads to verse thirteen until we all come to what? So now he underlines what produ- what is produced through this. Now understand in scripture, whenever he addresses an issue in scripture, he doesn't usually go in and say, Hey, here is a problem, so here is a solution. He usually writes a letter and goes right into what? Right into the solution. But you need to understand, we need to understand as we're reading these letters, that if he's addressing a question here, it's because there's an issue on the front end that he wants to either correct, either instruct, either build up. So he he intentionally is answering this question. And in just a minute, we're going to reverse that question a little bit and ask ourselves, okay, what if these things are not present? What does it produce? Because ultimately, he's addressing a need is because there's a need to address it. And what happens when this doesn't produce this? What happens when the body is not designed towards or is not led towards edifying the body and towards ministering, uh, doing the work of the ministry? What does that lead to? Because here's where it should lead to. Verse 13 says, until we come to what? What do we have in verse 13 that, verse 13 and 14, that is produced by this type of approach to our God-given Gifts and how they apply to 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 the body. What do we see in verse thirteen and fourteen? Unity and maturity. Okay, one, one unity. In other words, the fruit, the byproduct of approaching church, a, a member approaching church life as being, I'm equipped to equip for ministry within the body. I'm equipped to edify the body. It leads to what? It leads to unity. Of faith. The reason why we churches as a whole have a problem with with unity, to reverse that issue, is that we don't come equipped to serve one another. We don't come equipped to edify one another. And look in, if you look in your own history, what what you've experienced, how many times maybe in the past ten years you've experienced disgruntled members around what issue? Around the issue of I'm not being f- fulfilled in the church. Sometimes it's couched by saying, well, I just don't connect with anybody. Or I just don't make any friends. Or no one calls me. I, I was gone and no one called me. or and Whatever it is that – and some of these things are legitimate things the church should be doing. Don't get me wrong. But what I'm saying is that it centers around that when someone leaves the church family – there's disunity there. That doesn't mean there's disunity with the body as a whole, but there's certainly a breach of unity within that family, that couple, and and the church. So this type of approach to how we've been equipped then leads to unity of the faith. What's the second thing it leads to? I've wrote, I mean, I, I see three. You might see ten, but I see a few things. He mentioned, he mentioned maturity. I want to just backtrack the one right before that. Unity of the faith and what and of the knowledge of the Son of God. In other words, there's a growth in knowledge. It produces a growth in knowledge. Now you'll notice here that he doesn't emphasize in Ephesians four, as he doesn't emphasize in First Corinthians twelve. He doesn't emphasize no passages the need for th- this doesn't fall on the shoulders of one man to be the one that's going to be producing all the knowledge and growth in knowledge in the body. One thing I, I didn't really unfold couple weeks ago when I had the opportunity to share here uh, Sunday morning is we we desire unity in the body. We desire growth, growth in knowledge, but it's predicated upon the body as a whole fulfilling their God-given obligation. 
It's not predicated upon one man passing down his knowledge and hoping that during a week he had a good week, he got a message from God, and suddenly he's going to give us that message from God. You just never see the biblical model. And so if we want to produce biblical results, we have to expect to set up a biblical model to produce biblical results. And he describes here a, a byproduct of the equipping work of ministry, edifying the body as the, as the body comes together. One, it breeds unity. Two, it produces a growth in knowledge of the Son of God. And three, it leads to what? Mention maturity. To a, to a perfect man. Not, I think we know that word. Most of us are familiar with that word. It doesn't mean perfection. It means completeness. It describes a sense of maturity, a complete person. Um, it doesn't mean it doesn't mean perfection. I was coaching my 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 daughter is getting ready to go on a the first uh, what do you call these train seminars. Feel familiar with these professional training. She's going to go for Liberty's going to send a team of six people maybe for a conference. They go for a weekend conference. She leaves on Friday, comes back on Tuesday, going to Philly. <coughs> course as a young person you're thinking wow this is fantastic they're paying for everything you know they're gonna this conference is x amount of money they're paying for the hotel room dinner something you get all excited so i sit down with her and says listen this is not the time for you to go experiment with your freedom because a a mature person when they come to certain matter you know as a young person you're still you know i've never tasted that i want to puff that cigarette i've never i've never had that I want to see what it feels like. I mean, you, you have that little phase where you're looking for that, you know, I haven't tried this, I want to try it. But then you arrive at a point of, what, maturity, and you're over here thinking, you know, I, I don't need that in my life. I don't need to go out there and just, I know who I am in Christ. Mm-hmm. And I've got a foundation there that is solid. I don't have to, I told her, I said, you know, because the, her co-workers are already talking about going out drinking after in the evening. And, right. They're talking to her about all these things. I says, you know, be very careful. This is not the time for you to go out there and experiment with a newfound freedom. It comes with responsibility. And in maturity, he's saying, hey, learn how to, how to cope with it. She's a young girl in a situation where uh, she, she needs to be complete. Not perfection in terms of no fault but a certain level of maturity. So what he's describing is as, as it's applied to the body, it brings unity, growth in knowledge, and it brings what to, it brings a body to completion, to a, a perfection, to the measure of the statue of Christ. And he, he expounds on that in verse 14, that we should no longer be what? Children, tossed around, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men. In other words, there is discernment because there's growth in knowledge, there's maturity, uh, and we're not drawn towards these cunning things, and we're, we're sitting there mature. And that's, that's, what, that's the description of what? Goes, everyone desires this in the body, but it goes back to what? It goes back to the body, individual members of the body, being equipped spiritually to edify the body, to speak truth to the body, and to serve the body of Christ. That's when that's when you breathe it. That's when you come with, and it's we're all we're all naturally self-centered. I mean, that's just man since since sin has come to the world, sin has made man the center of the world, right? I mean, we we think we're the center of things. So 
Every time we get offended, we get offended. You know, every time we, we, we naturally are predisposed to be in there at the center. So you have to constantly fight this idea that it's about me when it's not about me. And keep on remind, being reminded, I'm simply an instrument in the Redeemer's hand. So he describes the beauty of it. Then he goes on to verse, so just walking through this, right? Uh, verse 15, but speaking truth in love may grow up in all things to him who is the head Christ, from whom the whole body joined. I see how the description is giving it now. First, well, he, he spends time in the book and talking about truth and love. Truth, uh, love is not, love is built on truth, not on emotions and feelings. It's not just a matter of do I feel good about something? Do I have an emotional response to it? But it's, it's founded on, on truth. He spends an amount of time describing that. Then look at verse 16. So all of this that leads us to 16, from whom the whole body joined, knit together by what every joint supplies. So we're knit together by what each person brings, what each person supplies to the whole, according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. I mean, just, just a, a beautiful description here of what should be our ideal. What he's reminding us, we're, we're instruments for this purpose. And you'll find, and I will find, our, our, just our, our greater, what he describes in the first chapter is the life in light of the big picture. Right? There's a big picture in play here. And big picture is... is is the part that we play, and he's very specific, 16, joined together, each person doing their share, causing growth of the body. So, obviously, as you, as you read this, uh, a number of questions can come, come to mind. i put one here. Well, I'm going to answer these two questions. We'll have time for, for that. For that. There's some of the interactive questions. But the last one here, anyway, someone who lives outside the body is incomplete, and will remain immature. Someone who lives outside the body, and I say a little bit beyond that, who doesn't contribute to the body. And if you have, and if you have a body of believers who primarily is made up of entertainment, and I'm not against, obviously, I'm not, I'm not harping on, on music styles and ministry styles. What I'm saying is that if you have a ministry that's built purely on coming and being entertained by something and leaving, you're not growing to the maturity of the body that's designed to be because you haven't incorporated uh, the giftings and knowing how to share and serve one another as a body. So he addresses the question going from here, the, the, the term interdependencies. I just trying to see. We're trying to stick with some of these chapters so that we don't – so the next person that follows – can, can uh, stay on track with me here, but seeing how much time we have to cover the next passages. But I'll, I'll say this about interdependencies. He, he describes that he goes to Isaiah 55. I won't place it here. I don't have time to go there. Isaiah 55, verses 10 through 13, gives a description of the watering and how the watering produces fruit, produces life. Uh, there are things that, um, as we speak, well, I'm just kind of stumbling along here because I want to skip by this chapter, really. Let me just go to, to here. I want to spend a few more minutes on here. Basically, what 
if you have time, if you have time to go through this on your own thought process, if you get, the, if you have the book, hopefully, he goes through read Isaiah 55, and from there describes three things that we have in common that brings us together: They're the same covenant, same objective of glorifying God, and same redemptive story that we're part of the of the bigger picture. There's a question here. It says we tend to offer a piece of advice. Now, my wife read my notes, my notes this morning, checking my my PowerPoint, didn't understand what I meant by what it means to to offer a piece of advice. She probably thinks that because I gave her a lot of advice. I get a lot of pieces of advice that don't that don't perhaps make sense. We t- how does offering a piece of, of advice lead to self-centeredness? So let me maybe stop there for a minute. Here is, here is what he addressed that I think is, I thought, I thought it was very clever anyway. He says, we tend to offer a piece of advice, as in we, 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 we give a verse that fits the moment, this type of approach is unsuccessful because, in essence, self is still in charge and at the center. So what he's saying, well, first of all, as we speak truth, let me walk back track a little bit here. As we speak truth in love, truth unites us around what? We're under the same covenant. We have the same purpose of glorifying God, and we're part of the same redemptive big picture. In other words, he, he backs up for a minute. The reason why we're able to do what we do within the body is because we're part of the same redemptive story. So he wants to back up and see the big picture. He says at all times... That when we give people advice, we give people advice within a small frame. We don't give people advice within the big picture of what God is, his, his, his redemptive plan. So we give a piece of advice. He said this piece of advice is basically we give them a, a verse to fit that moment. And that verse might be accurate, might be true. But that verse, we try to, within one verse, he says, we, as, in essence, a lot of times turn that verse around. And not in, a, in an appropriate way, but we, we still center it around around our circumstances and around what's going on in our lives. So we could provide a verse about peace. How can we have peace in that moment? And again, he's not saying it's not legitimate. But what he's saying is that if we forget, if we don't cast it in light of the big picture of what God's accomplishing, we get lost in that. So, for example, God's, someone's going through a hard time, and we, we go to a verse of how God allows tribulation in their life. So we, we focus on a passage on tribulation. Or we have, we have a hard time understanding how this happened. Is God really good? So we go to the Bible verse talks about goodness. Here's why God is good, and we try to address goodness. And we have a problem. Something happened in our lives, we have a hard time forgiving someone. So we go to the Bible passage, and we talk about, well, here's what God says about forgiveness. So we take, and appropriately so, we go to Scripture to try to address specific issues. He says, but the important part of these specific issues is knowing where they fit within the big picture and knowing how to cast them within God's greater perspective, God's greater purpose. And one reason why that is absolutely necessary is because, folks, we cannot, we're not going to be able to explain away what God's doing on a daily basis. I mean, you, you, could, you, could, rational, you could rationalize everything you want about how God good is and then try to compare it to your specific life, what's going on in my life. But the reality is, you're going to come to a certain part and say, well, at some point you're going to come and say, I just don't understand it. I just don't get it. I think sometimes we make a mistake of trying to explain God away in every detail. We just can't. You can't. You can't just explain God away. Well, God really wanted that. God really desired that. God really, they, well, what, what do you mean by that? And then you try, we try to get down in the specific weeds of it. Ultimately, you come down to, I just can't understand God. I mean, and God has a greater plan. The greater redemptive plan is what holds it together. And he addresses the reason why I, I set that up because he addresses three areas. And then he, he takes three comparisons. He says, for example, as we talk about God's sovereignty, as we talk about God's grace, as we talk about God's glory, 
the, the, the bigger picture of these questions is what needs to be addressed when you're trying to speak truth into someone's life. He talks about the first one, God's sovereignty. We know God is sovereign. Uh, he gives examples, you know, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven on earth, Psalm 135, Isaiah 46, he says, Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which I have not been, not been done, saying my purpose shall be, will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Scripture teaches that God has a plan for his world and the people in it. In other words, when we, we talk about God's sovereignty, I think sometimes we... I think we make a mistake of trying to, that's the right word, not micro-understand it, but we try, to, we try to apply that to my specific circumstances. Well, so God's sovereign. So that, does that mean that that accident I had, God steered the other car in my direction to flip my car so that would happen to me because God's sovereign, that he must have desired. Listen, actually we go through scripture and a greater study probably could be made about this and I, I started doing some research on it. When God speaks about his sovereignty, you know what he's referring to? That God's going to accomplish his purposes. God will. So when God says, yes, that um, all things work out for good, those who love the Lord, we focus, well, that means you know, if you love the Lord. You know, because we're, we're getting down to the micromanaged situation in our own specific life, and we want to understand how to apply it to my life. Actually, what that refers to is what? God will ultimately accomplish all his purposes. Man will devise all his plans, and God ultimately will still fulfill all his purposes and misses out. How do those two come together? I think sometimes we try to get lost in the weeds of understanding how those two come across. And I think when we do that, I think I don't think it's healthy. I don't necessarily think it's helpful. Because whenever what we rely on is what? When we step back and see God proclaims his sovereign rule over the affairs of men, I mean God's going to accomplish all his purposes down to the jot and tittle. How that plays out in my life? Does that mean that my my sister was diagnosed with uh, cancer recently? Praise the Lord, the diagnosis was was real positive. Uh, they said it's barely what they would call it stage one, so they're going to be able to handle it with, with minimal intrusion. So that was a blessing. Am I going to say that? Well, you know, sister, God and His sovereign rule desired you to have that so that you could experience this. And listen, I, when, I think when we go there, I think we're going we're going beyond. To, we're trying to explain God away. I mean, look around you. I enjoy um, walking the track sometimes at nighttime because it's late. It's been a long day, so I go to Brookville Track. I tell my kids, cause, you know, they already think I'm old anyway. So I kind of says, you know, <laughs> I, I, I jogged this track in 1991 when I first joined the Guard. I'd go at night after work, after classes, and jog that track. That's how far back I've walked around that track. And I walk around there. The lights are dim. See the stars, and I take a lap. And each lap, I pray for something different. And uh, my daughter went with me there. Well, they most of them. Uh, they've gone with me at times. You know, one came with me with, the, with their earbuds on. What's the point of coming with me with your earbuds in? You know. <laughs> <laughs> but every lap, I, I I love taking a different lap and, and praying for for something different. And it takes two laps to pray for James. So I have to. <laughs> I'll do so good and so good, Mark. <laughs> Man, I was just sitting out there, and because it's late at night, I look out there, 
And I see the, I look up and see the stars, and you see the infinite greatness of God. And you look down on the ground and see the infinite smallest and the most minute detail, and you see the infinite greatness of God. And you think about God saying, who are you to even think you could understand my ways? And sometimes in our, in our desire to parse and split and understand every word, we try to explain and put God in a, our nice paradigm. We have this theological framework. We want everything to fit within our theological framework. And so that it all makes sense to us, it doesn't make sense to us. I'm sorry. A lot of the details of life, but don't make sense to us unless you understand the big picture of what God's accomplishing. Then it makes sense. Only because I serve an infinite, good, loving, sovereign God that his, his sovereignty, his, his grace, his grace abounds and I live within the blessing of knowing that where sin abounds, grace what? Overabounds. So, he addresses that as it pertains to God's glory, and there's so many questions we could we we could address here that I had here how how it impacts our when we see things in light of the big picture, God's sovereignty. I don't. There's many many times where I, I can't explain away what God's doing in my life, but I can rest assured knowing that He's a sovereign God that controls the affairs of man, that who accomplishes purposes in the end. I can't understand how his grace, that his, his, his grace abounds, but I know that he intervenes at the neediest moment. I know his grace is there when it's needed. I know it's, 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 it's there at the moment I can turn to him and, and trust him that he's who he claims to be. And God's glory, you know, he, I, I love this last quote here. It says, rather than glorifying God by using the things he has given us to love other people, we use people to get the glory we love. It talks about ultimately using, uh, glorifying God and all that God's given us and, and, and our ultimate purpose is to glorify him. So in the midst of, in the midst of, my, daily, in, in the midst of my daily questions, listen, you can't explain away God. It'd be fallacy to think that we can even begin to understand what he's doing, but we can't trust what he says. We can trust that his attributes, that these attributes fit within the greater scheme of what he's, his greater redemptive plan. So, yes, a lot of times we kind of piecemeal faith together. We kind of throw grace in where it fits my life. We throw sovereign in where it fits my little perspective. In reality, it's a greater, much greater picture than that. And the beauty of it, the beauty of it is that you and I are part of a greater redemptive plan. That's the beauty of it. We're part of a greater redemptive plan. And any man, the only, the, the only life worth living is what? Is, is a life that has a purpose beyond life. By definition, a life worth living. If someone's going to have a life worth living, by definition, it has to be something that goes beyond his own life. And that is found in God's greater redemptive plan. And when we, when we plug into that and we plug into the body in that way, man, we, we, find, our, we find our purpose. We find our life. We find... We, we, we grow in knowledge and, and maturity. And so he, he's just a beautiful way he approaches that. Next week he talks about where to start in that process. And so we'll be looking at chapter 3 next, next Sunday. So, again, plan on staying next Sunday to be with us for our time of fellowship. Uh, if during the week something comes up, you know, and you prayer needs, you want to shoot my way, please do so. Just mention to me if they want to be shared or not shared so that we don't just brought, randomly uh, share in my email to so just specify that. So. Let's pray and close the time word of prayer. 
Father, I thank you that we're part of a, a greater redemptive plan, Lord, and a plan that certainly I, I see only a small part of what you're doing. And some days, Lord, you open my eyes and I, I see the beauty of it. Some other days I get bogged down in the details of life and I don't see it. But regardless of whether or not I see it or not, I trust in a God that is sovereign in the affairs of men who will fulfill his purposes. Lord, help us to, to see Ephesians 4 and ask ourselves, Lord, where do I fit in this plan? Because in part of this greater redemptive plan is that we as a body uh, serve one another. And in doing so, bring unity, bring maturity, bring completeness, and growing in knowledge. Oh, Lord, may we, may we pursue that as we pursue you. Thank you for this time together. Bless these families, Lord. Give them just a, a blessed week. Protect them. Watch over them. Give them wisdom as they raise and educate your children. And we commit this morning service to you, Lord. And we pray. Amen.